This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, 2010, Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Chapter 3. Education as an Aspect of the Covenant There is a strong educational emphasis running throughout the whole of Scripture. For instance, the people of God are constantly commanded and encouraged to learn and meditate upon the law. Deuteronomy 11, 18-21, Psalm 1, 2, 94, 12. Indeed, the law itself is the most fundamental sense, is in its is itself in the most fundamental sense a body of teaching, an educational curriculum and godliness for every area of the life, area of life. The word Torah means literally direction or instruction. Consider also the place of history in the Bible. The teaching of history is seen as a vitally important parental duty. Deuteronomy 4, 7-9, 6-20-25 And the history books in both Old and New Testaments form a considerable part of Holy Scripture. Indeed, the biblical philosophy of history in its widest sense is basic to the concept of progress and has been of fundamental importance in the rise of Western civilization. It has been argued that it is the biblical concept of linear time in contrast to the pagan idea of cyclical time which has been responsible for the emergence of scientific progress in the Western world. Then there is the wisdom literature, which is dedicated exclusively to education. The book of Proverbs was written to give instruction in wisdom, justice, judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple and knowledge and, discre- knowledge and discretion to the young, and knowledge and discretion to the young, so that the wise may increase in learning, and they learned attain wisdom. Proverbs 1, 3-5 Likewise, in the New Testament, the epistles are largely educational in emphasis. Indeed, the whole Bible is concerned with education. God has spoken to man by means of his word, and we are to understand and apply that word to our lives, and to teach our children to do and to teach our children to do the same. Thus, the Apostle Paul commends and bears witness to the validity and effectiveness of Timothy's Christian education. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Through faith which is in through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 So often we turn to this passage simply as a proof text for the doctrine of infallibility and miss its significance for the biblical philosophy of education. God has given us the scriptures that we might be truly and properly educated in terms of his purpose and thus equipped to fulfill our voc- and thus for- and thus equipped to fulfill our vocation as God's people. The social and cultural context. 
we must now turn to consider more closely what the Bible has to say about the responsibilities of parents with regard to the education of their children. In so doing, however, we must bear in mind that there are considerable cultural that there are considerable cultural differences between the kind of society represented in the biblical record and our own society. These differences are particularly evident in the degree of institutional forms developed in our own culture for the provision of many social needs. Indeed, institutional differentiation is a particular character is a particular characteristic of our society. In contrast, there is, in the biblical society, far less institutional differentiation across the whole spectrum of social life. It may appear at first sight, therefore, that a particular need such as education is not adequately provided for because we do not see the biblical society, we do not see in the biblical society the existence of a separate institution dedicated to its provision, dedicated solely to its provision. This is a judgment that we are particularly likely to make because we tend to look back at more primitive cultures with a modern perspective and assess them in terms of our own highly differentiated and bureaucratic social arrangements, often assuming, without good reason, that the latter are necessarily superior. The lack of a specific institution dedicated solely to education does not, in itself, imply a lack of provision in the biblical society, nor does it necessarily mean that we are more enlightened today and that the biblical arrangement for the provision of education was inferior to our own. On the contrary, with regard to education, the biblical model should be seen as having permanent validity, and thus the correct Christian model for today. Therefore, in this specific area, as in so many others, a return to the biblical model would be a considerable improvement on the highly institutionalized and bureaucratic arrangement which is mistakenly taken for a great achievement today. Nevertheless, because of these institutional differences between our own society and the biblical society, we often fail to appreciate the full impact of the biblical teaching on this subject. We must recognize, therefore, that, in contrast to our own institutionally organized society, biblical society is organized on a highly covenantal basis. This means that education, like every other area of life, found its context in the covenantal structure of life. By the nature of the case, the biblical society did not require a highly differentiated or distinctively institutionalized social structure in order for parents to provide their children with a covenantally faithful education. If we approach the biblical teaching on education with an alien perspective, which assumes that an adequate education necessitates such an arrangement, which is essentially a modern idea, we will likely miss the significance of what the Bible has to say on the subject. In order to appreciate biblical educational norms, therefore, we need to reorientate ourselves to the covenantal perspective set forth in God's Word. The Covenantal Perspective In the previous chapter, reference was made to the fact that there is a community of persons within the Godhead. Each member of the Trinity is in communion with the other members of the Trinity. Since man is created in God's image, 
he also reflects this aspect of God's nature. The need for communion is thus a basic characteristic of human nature. But, unlike God, who is an aseity, a totally self-contained and independent reality, uncreated and eternal, man is a being dependent upon his creator in all things, and thus, as stated above, his need for communion is realised first and foremostly in communion with God. The nature of the relationship which exists between God and man is expressed in Scripture by the concept of covenant. God relates to man by means of a covenant, and there can be no communion between God and man except on the basis of this covenant. The covenant defines the relationship that exists between God as the creator and man as his creature and image-bearer. Furthermore, it is important to grasp the fact that this covenant relation is the consequence of man's creation as a dependent being in God's image, and thus an inescapable fact of life, not a take-it-or-leave-it option for those with a religious disposition. The covenant is inextricably bound up with man's nature as a being made in the image of God. For the communion which exists between God and man is a reflection of the eternal communion which exists between the members of the Trinity. The creaturely and dependent nature of man's relation to God and the sovereign nature of God's relation to man is expressed by the structure of the covenant that God has established with mankind. In this covenant, the Lord God, as man's creator and sovereign, establishes his authority over his creatures and thus defines the limits of man's life according to his sovereign will. Man, as God's creature, stands under that authority in the relation of a subject to his sovereign. The terms of the covenant promise salvation and the blessings of communion with God and enjoined faithfulness and obedience on man's part. The scope of the covenant is comprehensive, embracing the whole of man's life. It defines man's calling as God's vicegerent, and prescribes the terms of his creation mandate to establish his dominion over the earth. In other words, the covenant is not to be construed as a limited or incidental contract established as a means to a particular end, but rather as a total way of life by which man is to love and serve his creator. The covenant is thus the supreme fact of life for man, the discarding of which constitutes the whole of man's fall into sin and restoration into covenant fellowship with God, the whole of salvation. When Adam sinned against God in the garden, he broke the covenant and fell from his standing as one who lived in communion with God. In Adam, the whole human race fell also, since he was the federal head and representative of humanity. However, God has re-established man's standing with himself by means of a perfect blood sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ at Calvary as the propitiation for sin. By faith, the people of God in times past had access to this redemption in Jesus Christ, which was typified in the sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament ceremonial law, and were thus restored to covenant fellowship with God. Having thus redeemed his people, God revealed his law to them as a guide and rule of life. This law constitutes the terms of the covenant under which God has redeemed his people, and it gives direction and regulation for every area of life. 
The life of the whole community of God's people was therefore covenantally structured. That is to say, it was a theocracy. In other words, the terms law of the covenant established at every level the nature and basic form of the social structure through which the people of God lived out the life of faith and obedience. The place and responsibility of the family in the covenant. In this social structure, the place of the family is of fundamental importance. The family is the basic and primary social unit through which the covenant life of the community is realised. It functioned as the basic economic and educational unit as well as providing for the welfare of its members. These three areas of family responsibility, welfare, economy and education, form the basic elements of what has been called the trustee family. The trustee family is the concept of the family set forth in the Bible. According to R.J. Rushtuni, the biblical family can be compared to a corporation. A corporation differs in that it has an artificial legal person and is created by the state. A corporation does not die when its founders die, or when its officers die. It continues to exist legally apart from its stockholders, who continue, as long as they are alive, to draw dividends from it. Similarly, the family is a corporation, consisting of parents and children. It pays out dividends to the children in care, support and inheritance, and it returns dividends to the parents in care and support as needed. As a corporation, it administers its properties and income in terms of its ordained and God-given purpose. For this reason, no arbitrary or purely personal decisions can govern the decisions of members of the corporation. They are both individual persons and a corporate entity, and their truest function is in terms of a full consideration of both offices under God. The idea of the welfare state, in which these God-ordained areas of family responsibility are provided for by the state, is clearly therefore unbiblical and anti-covenantal. The welfare state is a frontal attack on the biblical doctrine of the family, for it destroys precisely those areas of the family's authority which enable it to function as the trustee of its economic resources with responsibility for the welfare and education of its members. For the state to enter into the control of either children or property is to transgress on the sphere of the family and to claim to be that corporation whose life is the care of the family. Such a claim is a major transgression against God's law order. Under socialism, the family is really a redundant and outmoded form of life. The state is the trustee of society in all areas, and thus, in effect, claims to be the individual's only true family. The biblical concept of the family is heresy for status philosophy, for it presents independence from state control. The trustee family must therefore be destroyed. The state welfare program is one of the means used to destroy it. Thus, for the statist, the family is no more than a group of genetically related individuals who share the same housing unit. They find their true meaning and function in life in terms of the state. The biblical teaching on society and family is neither individualistic nor centralist.
but emphasizes man's responsibilities and privileges as a covenant creature in every area of life. The state, as well as the family, is thus a covenant institution which functions in terms of God's law order, that is to say, a theocratically governed institution. Both state and family are important institutions in biblical society, but their respective roles are clearly separated. The function of the state is as a ministry of justice, a civil government limited to the administration of those laws with a civil duty or penalty attached to them. This is an area where biblical law maintains a clear institutional differentiation which has been blurred in our own times. It is not the prerogative of the state or civil magistrate to act as a ministry of welfare, economy or education, or in any other way interfere with the responsibilities of the family, except in the legitimate administration of those laws which it exists to uphold, which are considerably limited in God's word. Under the covenant that God has established with mankind, the trustee family is responsible for the provision of these social needs. The education, welfare and stewardship of the economic resources of society are of central importance to the preservation and development of a civilization. The fact that these areas of responsibility have been given specifically to the family in the Bible is significant. It meant that the family was the fundamental social unit in the covenant structure of the nation. The prosperity and future of the nation was thus entrusted primarily to the family, not to the state. It was from the heads of families that the officers of national political and judicial structures were elected, for example elders, that is, heads of households, clans and tribes functioned as the civil, political and, in the earlier period, military leaders. The function of the family as a trustee was therefore vital to the life of the whole community and had a significance which extended far beyond its own boundaries, in that the quality of family life and its faithfulness to the covenant would be reflected in the quality and character of the men who led the nation. The future of the nation thus depended upon the family's faithful discharge of its covenant responsibilities. Clearly, therefore, in the Bible, the education of children is seen as a family responsibility. Children were to be educated within the context of the covenant life of the family, under the authority and guardianship of its head. See Psalm 78, 4-7. The nature of the education provided was also to be covenantally structured, that is to say, the father was responsible for ensuring that his children received an education which was God-centered, and thus which enabled the child to understand his calling and duty in life as God's servant and image-bearer. In other words, the covenantal perspective was to govern the whole of the child's education. Psalm 78, 4-7 Abraham is commended specifically because of his faithfulness in providing a godly education for his children and those born in his household. Genesis 18, verse 19 In contrast to Lot, who, while maintaining his own personal piety, had evidently neglected, in the midst of an evil generation, to educate his children faithfully in terms of the requirements of the covenant. Genesis 19, 14 
verses 31 to 36. Nor was it, moreover, to be simply a religious education in a narrowly defined sense of the term. History, jurisprudence, philosophy, ethics, economics, psychology, science, etc. are all modern terms, but the substance of the disciplines they represent were all present in varying degrees in the Hebrew culture of biblical times, though instruction is given in the form of practical wisdom rather than abstract academic dissertations. The writer of the Book of Wisdom tells us that he had been given true understanding of things as they are, a knowledge of the structure of the world and of the operation of the elements, the beginning and end of epochs and their middle course, the alternating solstices and changing seasons, the cycles of the years and the constellations, the nature of living creatures and behaviour of wild beasts, the violent force of winds and the thoughts of men, the varieties of plants and the virtues of roots. I learnt it all, hidden or manifest, for I was taught by her whose skill made all things. Wisdom. It was also the responsibility of the father in Hebrew culture to provide his son with a trade or means of livelihood. A well-known rabbinic maxim states, He who does not teach his son a craft teaches him to steal. The reasoning behind this was that, without a trade to provide a legitimate means of living, one would be tempted to resort to theft. This principle is as relevant today as ever, and the soundness of the reasoning behind it has been demonstrated all too well in our own society. Many today who have no trade or employment as a legitimate means of livelihood, or who have no access to employment in their trade through, for example, trade union labour restriction cartels, have resorted to a form of legalised theft as a means of support, viz. state welfare handouts, financed by excessive taxation or so-called wealth distribution programmes. The decapitalization of society resulting from these tax finance welfare programmes threatens to destroy the traditional and fundamentally biblical structure of Western society, in that it not only creates a vast section of the community which is economically and, given time, psychologically dependent on the paternalistic state, but also, through financial strangulation due to oppressive taxation rates, makes it increasingly difficult for the family to fulfil its God-ordained duty to provide for the education and well-being of its members. State welfare programmes, in which the family's means of providing for its own are confiscated in order to support those on state welfare, is a form of theft and a major factor in the disintegration of the family as the basic social unit in society today. The modern welfare state programme thus constitutes a complete overturning of the system of family welfare, supplemented where necessary by the church and personal works of charity, which is set forth in Scripture. New Testament Teaching When we turn specifically to the New Testament, we find that this covenantal pattern of family responsibility remains unchanged. The New Testament makes it clear that the family is still the basic social unit with the same covenantal functions as trustee of its economic resources with responsibility for the education and welfare of its members. 1 Timothy 5, 4, 8 and verse 16 The newness of the Christian covenant 
does not in any way abrogate the family's covenant responsibilities, nor the basic family-orientated nature of the covenant structure, not even with respect to the institutional church, since elders, for instance, should be the heads of households, family men who have proved that they are able to govern both themselves and their households in a godly way, before they can take on the government of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 2-13 God does not establish his covenant with men merely as individuals, but as they are the heads and representatives of their households. Genesis 17, 7, 9, etc. Acts 11, 14, 16, 31 This is not meant to imply that individuals cannot be in covenant with God or that their salvation is simply a matter of being born into a Christian family, irrespective of personal faith. But neither is salvation to be seen purely in individualistic terms. In other words, The covenant relation established by God with man does not terminate in the individual. Rather, it begins with him and goes on to embrace those for whom he is covenantally responsible and whom he must represent before God. The family, including its adopted members, is party to the covenant since it is represented in its head. This is so even from the soteriological perspective of the New Testament, in which Jesus is made manifest as the head and representative of the household of God. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 2.19, Colossians 1.18 It is through our adoption as sons of God that we share the blessings of covenant fellowship with God. Ephesians 1.4 and 5 God dealt with Adam as the federal head of humanity. Federal head of humanity, and with Jesus Christ, the last Adam, as the federal head of the new humanity. We are reconciled to God through adoption or incorporation into Christ. Galatians 3, 26-29 He is the head to whom we hold and the source of our salvation. The prior soteriological importance of our membership in the household of God through the adoption in Jesus Christ does not, however, in any way invalidate or diminish the significance of the family as a covenantal unit. Both Old and New Testament believers are under the same covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, and therefore the role and responsibilities of the family remain the same under both administrations. The family is the basic covenantal institution which exists within and itself helps to uphold the covenant structure of church, society and nation. Thus, in the New Testament, as in the Old, the promise of salvation, that is to say of restoration into covenant fellowship with God, is made to the believer and to his children. Acts 2.39 Of course, This promise is immediately qualified by the clause, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. However, this qualification should not be taken as a virtual negation of the former promise, which indeed is implied. We presume that the children of believers are not to be accepted as Christians until they have some kind of conversion experience or are deemed to have made their own decision to follow the Lord. 
And although it is through conversion experiences that many are brought to faith in Christ, we must remember that a conversion experience is neither an essential element nor the biblical test of true faith. Certainly, such experiences should not be seen as the goal of Christian education. Rather, the biblical norm is for our children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6 4. We are taught in Scripture to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22 verse 6. It should be stated clearly that what is being said here is not meant to imply the doctrine of baptismal regeneration in any sense, but it does mean that God will honour his covenant and be faithful to his promise. This promise, however, implies the shouldering of certain responsibilities on the part of those to whom it is made. It is a covenant promise made to parents which requires covenant faithfulness on their part. We are to raise our children in the covenant as servants of God in fellowship with him. It is a great encouragement to Christian parents, therefore, to know that God's hand is on their children and that they are to be treated as heirs of the kingdom of God, unless and until, by their own profession or apostate behaviour, they show themselves to be otherwise. Since the promise of salvation is to the believer and to his children, it is the duty of believers to educate their children in the Lord, that is to say, bring them up as Christians, not as pagans who must one day make an autonomous decision about their eternal destiny. Yet it is a teaching of Scripture that the children of believers are to be accepted as members of the covenant community and brought up in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.14, which means, among other things, providing them with an education which is God-centred and God-honouring and which therefore prepares them for a life of service to God. It is important to understand here that Christian parents are responsible not only for providing their children with an education, but also for the kind of education their children receive. For the Christian, the purpose of education is to facilitate maturation in the image of God, and thus growth into true manhood and true womanhood, so that the child might be able to fulfil his creation mandate in obedience to God's word. It follows from this that the kind of education we give our children must be one which is thoroughly grounded in the Christian worldview, and which seeks to subject every discipline to the authority of God's word as it is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Education is thus inescapably a covenant activity. Indeed, it is a central aspect of man's covenant duty. Hence, to deny our children such an education is to abandon our responsibilities as the covenant people of God. The primary aim of education It has been stated above that the purpose of education is to enable the child to mature in the image of God and thus equip him to fulfil his vocation in life as God's vicegerent and extend his dominion over the earth. If the child is to realise this calling, he must attain wisdom. It is wisdom which in the Bible is set forth as the primary aim of education. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding, 
Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Wisdom is the primary thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 7. Wisdom is more than either learning in the academic sense or practical knowledge in the popular sense, nor is it mere intuition. It is understanding in the fullest sense of the word, and thus something which is learned. Psalm 34, verse 11. The wisdom literature is certainly educational literature, as indeed is the whole of Scripture. But the pursuit of wisdom is more than the modern secular idea of education. Wisdom is, in a sense, more than the sum of its parts, at least from the point of view of formal content. It includes, or rather is characterized by, an orientation in life, viz. a sense of service and duty to God, and above all, a consciousness of the fact that life is lived in the presence of God and as a means of glorifying Him. Wisdom, therefore, comes ultimately from God, James 1 verse 5, and is acquired in the submission of our lives and of our minds to His Word in every discipline and field of study and in every walk of life. Thus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9, verse 10 Yet at the same time, wisdom is not pietistic. It is intensely practical. The wisdom literature in the Bible is full of sound godly advice about living, and how little there is of that in many schools today. Indeed, much of modern educational philosophy is little more than studied stupidity, and sheer folly. J. E. Adams' comments on the nature and meaning of the biblical concept of wisdom are relevant here and worth quoting at length. The principal Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah, which permeates the thought of Old Testament and New Testament writers, has given rise to a genre of writing we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature denotes wisdom by experience not just by study. It also includes the idea of discrimination between good and evil, the receiving of instruction, attitude or mindset, and the exercising of correct judgment and skills. The scope of the word is large, encompassing the totality of one's intellectual, living and performing experience. We have no equivalent term in English. Our own word, wisdom, by contrast, is impoverished. It is a word that, in fact, rapidly seems to be disappearing from our vocabulary. Fundamentally, the biblical word wisdom brings together three factors. Knowledge, life and ministry. It is knowledge, understanding from God's perspective, made profitable for day-to-day living for Him and, as a part of that, shared with others and used to minister to them. The biblical philosophy of education, therefore, embraces more than the mechanics of acquiring knowledge or technical information. It aims at far more than the child's self-fulfillment. Nor is it concerned merely with enabling the child to play a useful part in society. It is concerned with the attainment of wisdom, and this involves an attitude 
or orientation in life, an attitude or orientation in life of submission to the Word of God and commitment to the truth revealed therein. Its purpose is to enable the child to fulfill his true calling and to live in covenant fellowship with God and thus to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Place of the School The absence of schools for the education of children in biblical society should not be taken to imply that schools as such are wrong or inconsistent with the philosophy of education set forth in Scripture. It is true that the school is in no sense a biblical institution. That is to say, it is not a God-ordained institution with a scripturally defined role to play in the covenant structure of the nation. The God-ordained institution responsible for education is the family. Thus, the school is not to be seen as a separate institution in life with its own sphere of authority in matters relating to education. Rather, the school offers a service to the family in the pursuit of its educational responsibilities. As a service for specialist training in specific subjects, the school is a valid facility available for parents to make use of. But, in making use of the service offered by the school, Christian parents must ensure that its educational philosophy and practice are consistent with and will support and encourage the Christian covenantal perspective which should govern the child's education at every level. However, the modern idea that education as such is the responsibility of the school and, in the wider sense, of the school as the agent of the paternalistic state and an area of the child's life which is set apart from the covenant life of the family under the authority and leadership of its head, is certainly inconsistent with the biblical philosophy of education. Institutional differentiation, in which the responsibility and authority for the child's education is transferred from the God-ordained institution of the family to the school as an organ of the state, is the product of humanism, and an attempt by man to establish his independence from God and his covenant pattern for man's life. It is a form of social revolution against the covenant model set forth in God's word, and, as such, to be resisted fiercely by Christians and denounced publicly by the Church. The private school, as an ancillary tool for parents to make use of in the education of their children, provides a valid service in society today, but, again, it should not be seen as an institution in favour of which parents may abdicate their educational responsibilities. Obviously, since Erasmus was the last person to know everything there was to know in his time, it is not possible for parents today to specialise in all the fields of study which they may wish to offer their children. Thus, the school is a far more necessary service today than it was in biblical times. The extent of knowledge available to the Hebrew people in biblical times was far more limited than that available to us today. It was possible for a father to educate his children in at least the basics of most subjects, and probably beyond to a degree not possible today. Thus schools and freelance teachers with specialist skills, such as peripatetic musical instrumentalists and other ancillary tools, to facilitate learning in areas outside of the competence of parents, for example, correspondence courses, are to be employed as much as necessary. This becomes more important in the higher levels of study. But, 
In so using these facilities, parents are not at liberty to turn over the formation of their child's worldview to institutions or individuals who are pagan and anti-covenantal in their outlook. Conclusion Parents are responsible for the kind of worldview their children imbibe and for the kind of instruction they receive in specific subjects. Overall educational aims and perspectives, as well as the specific disciplines taught, fall within the area of parental responsibility. Thus, teachers are said to be in loco parentis, that is to say, taking the place of parents in the education of their children. It is therefore the responsibility of parents to ensure that their children are educated in terms of the Christian faith, not the religion of humanism and the Moloch state. God will require it of us. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.